remain standing, please turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. And today we'll be reading towards the, till the end of the chapter, verse 46 through 54. John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Hear now God's holy word. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my, children, my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I couldn't help but remember when reading a passage like this about the death of my dear nephew Andrew over 10 years ago uh, from cancer at the very young and tender age of 17. And I've, I've mentioned Andrew before here and his journey in suffering, but ultimately living out his faith in his Savior Jesus to the very end. And I wonder, as I'm sure many of you have, why does God choose to save some with certain tragic illness and not others? Why can some experience miracles of healing, but so many others don't? And ultimately, that is something probably unknowable here on earth in our limited knowledge and some things only God can explain and know. For Andrew, we prayed and we prayed some more so many of us expressed our faith in the Lord and our belief that God could heal him completely. And the questions probably still remain for our family over 10 years later. And I don't want to give away too much here at the outset, but God's main objective seems more tied to his glory and our salvation than seeing everyone with an illness cured because illness and death are truly a consequence of the fall. The Bible says death is truly our final enemy. I've been blessed to see some people in my family been completely healed. It's, we, we could only chalk it up to as a miracle and grace from God. But the objective is his glory and our salvation. And as much as this narrative centers around a boy's deathbed experience, there is, of course, so much more to all of this but that could be, and I understand this, if you're sitting in, the, in, in your seat and saying, well, Robin, that's kind of hard to hear, and that's confusing. But I think when we come to passages that deal with miracles and healing, we shouldn't get so tied up with the miracle itself, but more obsessed with the person who performs the miracle, our Lord and Savior Jesus, and the reasons why he did such things. And I think we can learn a lot from this short passage today. And so we come to the end of chapter 4, where we see the continuation of Jesus' journey from J Jerusalem, where he was there during Passover, all the way north again from Judea to Galilee. 
And so Jesus could have, we mentioned this the last couple of weeks, he could have gone around Samaria in the north, but he went through this tense-filled region because he knew he would encounter this woman at the well. Remember, Jews and Samaritans did not get along together. And the disciples could not have known in this journey that this Samaritan woman, and of course none would expect Jesus to mingle with her, would eventually be saved and would witness unto Jesus to her own town who would also eventually be saved through their own hearing of Christ's words. And if you've been here for the last uh, four months or so, going through the Gospel of John, it's pretty apparent that the Gospel of John, the, the Apostle John, is really highlighting, spotlighting, witness unto Jesus. Witness unto Jesus. But ultimately, Jesus was trying to get back to Galilee to continue ministry there, where even his hometown has rejected him. But in today's passage, Jesus has a stay over at Cana. We remember early on in John that Jesus performed his first sign, his first miracle at Cana. The scholars note that from John chapter 2, and if you're taking notes, you could probably, it would probably be worthwhile to jot this down, that John 2, 1 through 12 was the first encounter in Cana. It was, of course, the wedding feast. And then all the way through today's passage at the end of John chapter 4, verse 46 through 54, also in Cana, act as these bookends to describe what people call the early ministry days of Jesus, from John chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 4. And I like how one theologian noted that the first sign at Cana was amidst such grand, jubilant joy, and then at the second visit to Cana, the situation was so much more dire with despair and sorrow of this official over the imminent death of his child. What we can gain, though, from these bookends and everything in between is that God is always capable of being there for his people, whether in immense joy all the way to immense fear and trial. I really want you to take that home with you today. God is always capable of being present for you and for his people, whether in immense joy all the way to immense fear and trial. And if someone was blessed enough to witness both of these signs, let's just say maybe a disciple or other followers or, or those in the, in the town who said, oh, here's Jesus again. If someone was blessed enough to witness both of these signs and miracles, or at least hear about it from this official, they would have perhaps thought of Psalm 46, 1 through 2. We read this earlier in the service where God says, "God, in God's word, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Let's remember that in the back of our minds as we conclude chapter 4. And as I usually do, I have three headings to help steer us along. And I'll repeat these as we go along. Number one, believing begins with humility. Believing begins with humility. Number two, believing his word means believing in him. And then finally, number three, the awareness of God's grace leads to strengthened faith. The awareness of God's grace leads to strengthened faith. So look at your Bibles again. Keep that open if you can. Verses 46 through 48, the first heading is believing begins with humility. So he came again to Canaan and Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked, him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
Now friends, Capernaum was right at the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And although Cana was in this overall region, the official would have needed to travel a bit southwest, about 20 miles, scholars say, to get to Jesus. That's, that's no uh, small feat. So the geography here in chapter 4 already tells us that there is a desperation and urgency, and I think those of you who are parents here could understand the urgency. He's not simply, well, waiting around. Jesus will eventually come back to his kind of headquarters of ministry. No, he goes to him. Yet this was no ordinary man. This was a high official for Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was not a king, but one with a lot of authority from the Roman Empire to rule. And we all remember what he did with John the Baptist in regards to uh, his eventual death and martyrdom and beheading. And so one would be ashamed, actually, to make a request like this, especially to reach out to someone creating such a, a ruckus with miracles and signs. Herod and all his officials would not be naturally fans of Jesus. But this official believed that Jesus could be the only solution for the healing of his son. And so he risked his position, his prestige, his, uh, his job, his livelihood, because he was urgent in his desire to see his son saved. You see, nobody comes to saving faith by being proud and arrogant, thinking we can be the ultimate solution to our own plight. This official understands this. You don't have to be, but you don't have to be a high official to understand the principle. To come to Jesus in faith, one must accept that there's nothing we could do in our own power or right to save ourselves or to be delivered. And we see this time and time again all throughout the New Testament. Believing begins with humility. Believing begins with humility. To say, Jesus, I don't have the answers, but you have them. I can't get myself out of this dark situation, but you can. There's nothing in me that can save myself, but you can. You see, that requires humility to admit all of that. And of course, that's God-enabled. And in the larger context of saving faith, then, just think about the humility that is present when someone says, please save me and forgive me of my sins. I, I can't atone for these things, Jesus. Whether big or small offenses against you, God, I, I need you to save me and only, only you can provide this. I, I believe. Nobody would genuinely believe that or say that without humbling themselves before the Lord. And, and note I, that I said genuinely believe because there are many people that can flippantly say, Lord, save me or Lord, forgive me without really believing and trusting in him but rather they just maybe want to get out of a jail card or they feel pressure from family or friends or maybe they want some kind of spiritual, emotional experience. But Jesus sees through all of that and we see that, of course, in the Gospels also. But for the one that genuinely is helpless in themselves and calls out to God, humility, of course, is involved with genuine faith. And this is why Jesus says again in verse 48, so unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Please note that Jesus is not mocking this official. You see in verse 48, the you there, unless you, in the Greek, that's plural. He's talking more generally about those that only want something from Jesus but not believe. And for you all, and he's talking to this massive group, unless you all seen signs and wonders, you will not believe because that's the pattern. But the official is different. As we'll see the narrative play out, the official believes before he could see for himself if his son was healed. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but just think about that. He was believing in Jesus before he actually knew. Isn't that so critical? This official is not someone that only believes after seeing signs and wonders, 
but he believes in his word. And that's what leads us to our second heading. Number two, believing his word means believing in him. Believing his word means believing in him. Look at verse 49 through 50. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. You see, in their day, the Greek translated as sir could also be translated as Lord. Again, this is a show of respect and humility from, uh, ironically, Herod's official. Of course, he doesn't want his child to die. And so he refuses to be included in the admonition of Jesus saying that people only believe after seeing signs and wonders. No, the official doesn't back down. He wants to believe. He knew what Jesus was capable of, and he was desperate. That took humility, but of course, faith. And so this was entirely more than emotionally responding to Jesus or just merely using Jesus as a genie in a bottle type of deity. The text says he believed in the word of Jesus. And if you believe in the word of Jesus, and of course, naturally, you're believing in the person also. If you believe in his word, you're believing him. That's how faith works. When you trust in Jesus that there's no other way to be saved except through him, you're not just believing in his words. You're believing in all he represents in his own person, in his own work. And of course, all these new believers are eventually going to see that his work, last week we talked about Jesus' food, which was doing the Father's will from what we talked about last week's passage. His work is to go and die for sinners like this official on the cross. So as the Father returns back to his town, and I'm not sure how long that would have been for 20 miles, he is already believing that what Jesus said is going to come to pass. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. Someone who shouldn't have been aligned with Jesus at all is simply trusting and believing what Jesus said had happened, already happened. I love this childlike faith that I think we have a temptation in today's context in the 21st century that is, is until you kind of wrap around your mind with all the theological doctrinal bits and you're able to articulate it perfectly to somebody, a stranger or somebody who wants to know more about Christianity, only until then, oh, then you've proven that you really believe. But I've met so many people, so many people in my life and in my ministry uh, uh, endeavors that, oh, they, they, they wouldn't be able to explain very much except they knew the basics. They knew the foundational bits from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus, according to the scriptures, came to live a perfect life, but to die and to be buried, and then the third day rise again. And before he ascended into the right hand of the, to sit at the right hand of the Father, he witnessed, he was witnessed with many, many people, 500 people before he went to be with his Father. That, that, that basic just trust, that I believe that that's true and I believe that this applies to me, that he died to forgive my wretched sins. This official most definitely didn't have a laundry list of, oh, I know all these doctrines and theological bits, but I know that I believe his word and I believe him. And he's believing now because Jesus said this, oh, that he has indeed been healed. His disciples might have tugged him on his shirt and said, oh, Jesus, wouldn't it be better if the boy was brought here? 
and, and everyone could see you heal him because we, we have a mission for you, we have a marketing plan, we hired two new people. Like if, if this is just kind of a blind healing, like that's not gonna really help us out. Well, that was not the agenda of Jesus. His desire was not more fanfare or more shallow believing right after seeing a miracle performed. He wanted people to believe his word about himself. And of course he had compassion on this man. But even though there is faith present in this official, even before he goes back to his town, faith can always be strengthened. We're going to talk about that in a moment during uh, um, the sacrament of communion. Faith can always be strengthened. And that takes us to our final and third heading. Number three, the awareness of God's grace leads to strengthened faith. The awareness of God's grace leads to strengthened faith. Look at verses 51 to the very end of 54. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's, one, that's around 1, 1 p.m., at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. What an encouraging part of this passage. This man, this official, doesn't even seem surprised. He's not jumping up and down saying, I can't believe this actually happened. He simply asked, well, let's, let's, let's think about this. What time did he seem to get better? It's much easier if he could have just, you know, texted all the people back home and got it instantaneous, like he, he's getting better at one o'clock. But no, he had to wait. I don't know, how, again, how long it took him to get back. So they tell him when, and oh, that was the same time Jesus said he would be healed. And so that makes sense, because I believed in his word. And so the text says that he and his household believed, but the previous portion already said the man believed in Jesus and his word. One theologian knows that this is simply an expression of strength and faith. How many times have you gone through life, even though you expressed faith maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago or last year, and then throughout that time that has passed, you found yourself saying, I believe. Oh, this is why I believe. This was simply an expression of strength and faith. That maybe for some of us, this might be daily. I believe. This might be weekly. If not weekly, then every once in a while, we are cognizant and we're nudged by the Holy Spirit. We're aware of the grace of our Lord revealed in our lives. And you quietly and humbly say in your own heart, oh, I remember this is why I believe. I believe that God help my unbelief, but I believe. Oh, help me see your grace. I hear many of you say, that was all God. Or that was, yet again, a demonstration of his grace, Robin. Our elders say that to me. You members say that to me. My friends will say that to me who are believers. Oh, this was, traces back to the grace of God. What you're saying is, I believe. And he is so good. And he is so gracious. I'm, Robin, I might, might have swayed a bit. But this is a wonderful reminder of the grace of my Lord. Oftentimes when we're backsliding a little bit or when we're feeling aloof in our minds and in our spiritual journey and our walks with the Lord and God, by his grace, humbles us and shows us something that only he could show us. And it brings us, it, it's kind of almost a wake-up call. And we say, this is why I believe. Don't we all need this reminder? Don't we all need faith strengthened? 
because we are still sinful and we all go through the ups and downs of life and our faith goes up and down like a roller coaster and it's never constant. And so we need to say again and again in our hearts, I believe. I believe that once I have faith, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Nobody can snatch away my faith, but oh, it wavers. Oh, it ebbs and flows. Oh, it's strengthened, but also sometimes my faith is weak. Because believing is not just a once in a lifetime act. Believing is a concept that expresses itself throughout the rest of your life. And you say, well, of course, that's such a basic thing, but I think we need to hear that. Believing was not, uh, maybe some of you grew up in an altar call or a Bible study teacher sat at a table prayed with you, or it was your mom or dad. That, that, that was not just for that moment only. And I think many Christians forget this. Every day that we wake up, God, I believe. Help my unbelief, but I believe. Help me walk out and step out in faith in my belief. Help me to be more in tune to where is your grace going to shine upon me this day or this week or this month or this year. Because sometimes our faith wanes. Sometimes faith seems so small. But thank God that we are not saved by our personal faith in itself. But as many who have come before us reminded us, it's the object of that faith. Jesus Christ that saves. Because look, can you imagine if our salvation was based on the strength of faith? You know, we have a database uh, in the office of members and attenders and and things like that. But what if there was a category, and don't worry, we, we don't do this. What if there's a category of everyone's strength of faith? And there was a certain line of faith, maybe 50%, that that was a cutoff. And oh, there's Robin again. He's 48. Let's maybe remove him next year, right? Can you imagine if that was the litmus test of being a Christian? We would be afraid the rest of our lives. Every day, every week, we would say, is it enough? I remember maybe sharing here before, I was in an Uber and a, a wonderful, friendly a Muslim man was driving me and it so happened that we just started to talk about religion and he knew that I was a Christian. I'm not sure if I said I was a pastor, but we were just talking about this and, and he said, you know, we talked about the, you know, the afterlife. What, what's going to happen after we die? And he said, we, we got to just do good works, do good works, do good works until the very end. And then if he said, Allah would allow him to. If I did enough, I will enter into paradise. And I just sat there quietly in the back and I said, well, wow, that, that's, I'd be a little bit afraid. I wouldn't know if I've ever done enough. Huh? Isn't that a little worrisome for you? And he, he got quiet. And he said, well, we just got to keep trying. Oh, what if Jesus said, it's based on your faith. It's based on the strength of your faith is my meaning rather than the object of trust and belief. So friends, be focused rather on the object of your faith and fears will subside indeed. Some of you guys have been visiting here or maybe streaming online and thinking, I'm right at the edge, I'm right at the, the fence line, I'm not sure if I want to believe in Jesus. What if I'm not good enough? What if I've done too many bad things in my life? I think you're focusing on the wrong things. Focus on the object of faith and Jesus takes care of everything. But what is actually grace? We've all heard here or elsewhere that grace is God's unmerited favor towards you. I, I, I recite that often. 
God's unmerited favor toward you. But theologians go a bit further by saying God's grace is unmerited favor toward you even when you deserve the opposite. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward you even though you deserve the opposite. When the official goes back to his town to see that this child is healed, he must have realized that this is the grace of God. That not only was this unmerited and unearned favor towards him and his household, but as an official of Herod, he deserved no mercy and no grace. Isn't that the same with our spiritual situations? That not only salvation comes to us as unearned favor, but oh, how we all deserve the opposite. We mentioned earlier today in our confession of faith. We deserve hell and damnation. We deserve darkness, not light. We deserve wrath, not mercy. Yet Christ Jesus in his grace took all of that wrath and punishment for our rebellion and sin and on himself on the cross. This is the message of hope of the gospel 2,000 years ago and is absolutely the same message of hope still offered today. You see, over 2,000 years, the world has changed so much. There are so many differences from then compared to now. Yet the fact of the matter is, what has stayed the same is that all have fallen short of God's glory. All need to call upon the Savior to be saved. All are doomed to damnation without true atonement. And all who trust in Jesus' finished work and in his person can then be saved. And thus the passage concludes with not only the official believing, but his whole household which probably included all of his servants too. They believed in his word, meaning they believed in the person of Jesus. So how do we apply this to our lives? Just two quick reminders. Number one is this. Make a habit of identifying the grace of our Lord. Make a habit of identifying the grace of our Lord. This is a little bit off the cuff. I'm just kind of thinking about this in real time, which is usually not sometimes a good thing, but I, I have Apple AirPods and they have noise cancellation. And, uh, you know, I'm tempted to buy the new ones because it says it's doubling the noise cancellation. I love that. And I walk through society sometimes or at a bookstore or whatever I'm walking and I, I just can drown out. It just gets drowned out by this, this technology. And sometimes someone is talking to me. Sometimes uh, someone's trying to get my attention and I'm just oblivious. And I think this is a parallel to what we're talking about here. Make a habit of identifying the grace of our Lord because spiritually we put in these AirPods and we just go, we're so busy. And then Sunday through Saturday, we reflect on this past week and we probably miss so many opportunities to identify the grace of our Lord because we have this kind of almost grace realizing noise cancellation in our ears. And so make a habit of identifying the grace of our Lord. But let's unpack this application by explaining what the opposite would be. What if we intentionally avoided identifying anything as the grace of our Lord? If we take for granted that we are living and breathing. If we take for granted that we are saved. If we take for granted people he has put around us to encourage us, admonish us, convict us of spiritual truths. That would be grace. But what if we took it all for granted? Or that when we come to the Lord's table, that this is one of the ordinary means that God expresses his grace to us and strengthens our faith. What if we take that for granted? But when we make a habit to identify the little things to the big things in our lives and even in our own church, our faith will undoubtedly increase as we start to feast on the grace of our Lord. When we take out that, that AirPod and we just say, oh my goodness, 
Like, I want to pray with people now. I want to get together. I want to send an email of encouragement. I'm going to write a card because I'm feasting on the grace of the Lord and I am acknowledging where he shows us to me and to our church. Make a habit of identifying the grace of our Lord. Number two is regularly remember and believe in the promises of God. Regularly remember and believe in the promises of God. This was a promise from Jesus to this unknown official, and he believed it. He believed it. He took it to heart on his journey. He must have been jubilant, joyful, knowing that if this is God, if this is the Son of Man, the Son of God, then truly what he said is true, and I, I take that promise and I believe it. The wonderful Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs once wrote, every time a believer reads the scriptures, every time a believer reads the scriptures and encounters a promise of God, he ought to lay his hand upon it and say, this is part of my inheritance. It is mine, and I am to live upon it. Every time a believer reads the scriptures and encounters a promise of God, he ought to lay his hand upon it and say, this is part of my inheritance, it is mine, and I am to live upon it. I think that was so helpful for me in my preparation. But of course, if we don't familiarize ourselves with the scriptures, we have less opportunity to remember the promises of God, but also less opportunity to even know that they're in the first place, children here or junior high, high school, college students, and just kind of growing in your faith there are so many more distractions that I had to deal with in the 80s and 90s that will take you away from the scriptures. But if you just take the time to say, oh, this is why we are to get in the scriptures, is to say, this is your inheritance. It is yours. Put your hand upon it and live upon it. For it would only encourage you and point you again to God's grace. And I'm not trying to be condescending or demeaning to younger children here. This is this is for all of us. This is for me, too. That it's not just from my preparation for sermons or teachings or, or, or counseling session coming up, but this is, this is nourishment for my soul because this is the promise of God revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. And when you see the promises and know they are for you, but really corporately for the church, for his people, our faith increases and our joy is made complete. Try it for a month. Come back to me and report, has grace increased? How, are you more aware when you're remembering the promises of God? So to conclude, have we seen these principles in our lives? The Cana at chapter two with joyfulness or the Cana at the end of chapter four? That life can be full of polar opposite situations all the time. One moment everything is fine. The next is filled with chaos. There's a lot out there to help during desperate times. Things in the world even, they can be really helpful. But nothing in the world can offer Psalm 46. Our great God being our ever-present help in time of need, nothing can surpass that. And so should we join some training regimen to get this help from God, or should we just take him for his word and believe? Faith, whatever size, whatever strength, is still enough faith to trust in the all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, ever-merciful Jesus. And as long as there is true and genuine faith, even if it's the size of a mustard seed, we all get the same strong, finished work of Jesus and his person. And so coming back to my nephew Andrew, the main point and goal of all this is not figuring out who is to be healed and who shouldn't, but how God's glory 
is manifest. Listen to what is said in John chapter 2 at that wedding scene, verse 11, after the first sign in Cana. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What a wonderful parallel to chapter 4 then, that both instances involved signs and consequently people believed in the Christ based on his glory being manifested and displayed. You see, this is about identifying who Jesus is. And this is about his glory. This was Jesus' intention. You see, Jesus is displaying in these early ministry days that he is the true Messiah. This is the point of signs and miracles. He is the true Messiah who can forgive sins, who can cause people to be born again, who can bring the woman at the well, this brokenhearted back home who is also the Lord even over life, as we see in the healing of this boy. This is a passage, this passage is not about, if you follow this formula about faith and prayer, that every tragic death can be avoided, or that every sickness is to be healed in this lifetime. That's not the purpose of this passage. That's not at all what it's about. This is about responding to someone who believes, but not for fanfare or in front of the masses for popularity, but a display of his own glory in someone's private house, for an unexpected person such as this official to believe in the word of Christ. So when I think of Andrew, of course I wish he was healed on the spot. I I wish he could have lived a long life. Excuse me. But God had other plans. And that God still remained good and sovereign. I apologize. And God accepted Andrew's trust and faith as righteousness. Only through Jesus Christ, God's glory is displayed in those moments too. The next time God doesn't answer your prayer for healing or for this or for that, for his reasons, know that this is not because your faith is not strong enough or that you're somehow a subpar Christian. And I think I I play that game too. It puts us in a jail cell and we feel guilt-ridden. This is what this passage is not talking about. Is that we respond to all circumstances in faith, in believing, in believing in the person of Christ, but also believing in his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us to believe in all the promises that you have for us in the scriptures. That truly someday all diseases, as Psalm 103 says, are to be healed uh, with no more tears, no more death, no more pain, only sheer joy and the glory of God on full display. Help us to understand that, to see that even when moments are so hard, so difficult, so dire 
that you are still and will ever forever be good and that you have a purpose and plan that you are sovereign. And what matters is your glory. What matters for us is that the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, saves us from all the consequences of the fall and sin and that you accept us in your presence, not just for this lifetime, but forevermore. We thank you, Lord, for this passage that taught us about faith and about your sovereign will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.